You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is uh, I Love You Keep Going, uh, and uh, it's sort of Meta Group's um, weekly uh, talk and sit. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's February 17th, 2022. We've been talking about the progress of insight, and we got uh, through the 10th stage, really, uh, last time we talked about it, and I thought I'd just finish it up. It might be a little bit esoteric. Um, uh, if you uh, haven't uh, gotten this far in your practice, but uh, it is something that uh, it's nice to have a signpost for, I think, uh, uh, in the way that the the cycle works. So uh, the first stage is really exploring. Oops, let me close the store. The sounds of the city. <clears throat> Um, or should we really call Los Angeles the great suburb? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Lucy, come in. Come here. Um, settle down. In the first stage, really what we're looking for is uh, clarity around uh, the, the activity of sensing. Uh, in, in exploring that piece, uh, we, we touch into the five senses mainly, uh, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. And we wanna be able to pull them apart. In Vipassana, really what we're doing is pulling things apart so that we can see the parts and then watch the interaction of the parts and make an, uh, and uh, understand the nature of the human condition uh, by doing that. Mind is also a sensing experience that uh, we have in, in Buddhist thought. And really what mind does is direct your attention to things that are uh, interesting to you. When we say interesting to you, what we really mean is that you have a hierarchy of uh, objects that you're interested in, and if they're in the environment, the mind directs your attention to them. Uh, so that uh, part of this understanding is that you don't take a sweeping inventory of everything that's there. You just pick the things that have meaning or conditioned meaning toward, uh, and you have a, a hierarchy of high value targets and you tend to look for them. So you consider a rich environment to be an environment that's filled with those uh, high value targets and a poor environment to be an environment where there aren't that many of them. The second is uh, conditionality, really uh, understanding uh, a number of things there. One is that the mind makes these selections and that the selections and the things that you're interested in focusing on are based on conditioning. And that when you identify one of these uh, high value targets, you often associate the conditioned response of that target to it. And if you're not careful about the experience of the present moment, you can easily slip into the conditioned understanding of it. And then you're out of the present moment into 
the uh, thinking uh, conceptual experience. And so we're always trying to push back into the experience of the present moment. When you make conceptual reality from ultimate reality, you take the sensing experience. It's evaluated for ur urgency, really, is how I like to think about it. If it's urgent, it gets uh, priority in it, the attention. If it's neutral, probably never gets into consciousness. And uh, if it's pleasant and there's time for the experience of pleasant, you can have pleasant experiences. Consciousness, the conscious self-experience is really the thing that tracks the, the process of the body-mind and the conclusions that you've come to and the, the actions that you're going to take. So that if you want to stop yourself from taking an action, you have that moment. Uh, I like to say you're sitting in a little green industrial booth in front of a, a red button that when it flashes, it says veto across the top of it. And if you're really about to engage in something unskillful, you can hit the button and it will stop the, the process of that unfolding. But we are largely these conditioned unconscious beings that simply are acting in the world. Uh, the the self-experience consciousness does not discern what's going to happen. It doesn't make the, those intentions. Uh, really, it just at the, the end of the process, tracks it so that you can uh, veto it and maybe uh, try and direct it into a different experience. Um, <clears throat> so where your attention goes, what you select, that process of selecting these little snapshots or these little mind moments, which you then use to create the tapestry of the experience of the present moment consciously understanding that the conditions of the present moment uh, allow the next moment to unfold and all of the options in the next moment are tied to the experience of this moment. Then we touch in the first investigation of the, the three marks of the three characteristics of existence, anatta, nietzsche, and dukkha. Anatta is often translated as not self or no self. Uh, nietzsche is impermanence and then dukkha is uh, the understanding of the nature of the human condition in the sense that you're you're living in a human body which will get which will age will get sick and which will eventually die sometimes you get what you want but you always lose it because of the impermanence factor sometimes you don't get what you want and there's a sorrow that can come from that and sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want and then the last one is that subtle constant irritation that nothing is exactly how you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. So there's a touching into these concepts and a process of beginning to explore them, to understand that this, uh, this the, the root causes of suffering is wanting it to be different than this. And then you can begin to examine your conditioning around uh, how that might be I don't know why lately the, but uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, a quote of his comes to mind, which is, <clears throat> the bad news is we're just falling through space. The good news is there's no ground, so you're not going to hit anything. <laughs> if you really think about the precarious nature of the human life or any life, really, it, uh, how do you balance the 
precariousness of that. Really, I think from the attachment side, of course, it is that you put around yourself reliable people who will help you uh, if you need help and that who you can help in return for that. So it's a dependable, reliable system. Then you move into the exploration of arising and passing. And this is an, an understanding that everything arises and passes both at, at the micro level and at the macro level. One of the things that the untrained mind often does is jump from arising to arising to arising. So it creates the perception of ongoing phenomena. Whereas when you begin to touch into the falling away of things, the, then you see quite clearly these waves of arising and passing. At the sensing level, every sensing experience is these waves of arising and passing. And when you really focus in on that and it becomes vivid, which it, it, it can do, so a high concentration state with a lot of clarity where every sensing experience that you turn your attention to is this vivid experience of arising and passing, we call that an AMP event. And it gets to the point often where the smooth flowing experience of conceptual reality becomes kind of staccato or choppy. Uh, and that uh, undoes the, the capacity to believe unwittingly into the, in the experience of conceptual reality because you begin to see it as this construction rather than as an accurate representation of what's there. In the West, of course, we have the conditioning around Descartes and the, the, the philosophy of reason and emotion. Uh, and uh, if we trace that all the way back to the Greeks, what we have is uh, Aristotle, uh, who uh, uh, posited that we take in through visual experience the outside world and we create an accurate working model internally, which we operate from. This is completely different than the, the Buddhist idea. And then a little later, Epicurus said that if there's a strong emotion associated with experiencing the world, then it can create some ripples of distortion in the way that we create the experience of what's out there. But the working model is largely accurate because uh, we sense uh, because of the way that we sense it. One of the things that that uh, tends to do is create people uh, a sense that uh, in people that our perception of what's happening is reliable, and that we can then operate from the basis that we've created, we've taken in what's there, and we've created an accurate and complete model of what's there. Uh, and when we when when we compare this to the the Buddhist idea that we take in the data, and we have this set of undifferentiated, unfixated, ultimate reality, and then we compare it to a perceptual database, and we create conceptual reality by assigning meaning to it, uh, and then project that outward, uh, we see and and my experience really maps onto this more that. Uh, we don't really create, uh, we don't take in an accurate representation. We take in a highly select uh, uh, curation of what has meaning to us, and we create the world and the experience of self from that.
uh, as the arising and passing experience unfolds, what you tend to notice is a lot of energy arising in the body. Piti is the word in, in Pali. And when the energy in the body gets so great that you, the, uh, the perception of it begins to uh, change, sometimes in the beginning what you'll notice is that there's a kind of a, a flow experience or an impermanent experience in the proprioceptive system. So the body seems quite distorted or stretchy or uh, I noticed when I used to do these long sits that the, the proprioceptive system would drift and I would actually have the experience of being a pair with five points, two points for legs, two points for arms and a point for the head, but largely a, a pair shape, particularly in doing strong determinations, uh, sits where uh, the perception of the body isn't getting the constant feedback of movement to, to recreate the image of it. Uh, Christian? Is that part of the purpose of those kinds of long sits to like sort of give you that insight of of the of that proprioception being this kind of additional layer and not or that well i think that uh the not there's a couple of reasons for the uh, strong determination sitting one is you're often tracking very subtle sensations and if you keep moving they're obscured by the movement um but the other is that in order to to keep the body from moving, which will move auto, really automatically in, in response to painful experiences in the body, you have to be constantly in the present moment. So it reinforces present moment awareness. And then one of the side benefits is that you you can explore these these flows and uh, proprioception. Uh, but, you know, as the energy or the PT arises in the body strong enough, of course, it dissolves each of the various sense gates into flowing energy. And then eventually it dissolves the barriers between the, the senses, sense gates, and then it uh, dissolves the experience between inside and outside. So this is called banganada or uh, dissolution. Typically, it's a high concentration state. Uh, it often feels quite blissful, but uh, uh, some people, and I know that this was certainly true of me, the first time it happened was that it was completely disturbing not to be able to locate a solid body in, uh, and just to have an energy field. Then uh, that dissolution experience, um, which having done it so many times at this point is just a really pleasant experience and sometimes comical. I was uh, sitting a retreat up at Zaka Lake maybe 10 years ago and uh, I had complete dissolution of the body except for my feet and my head. And I was wandering around the retreat center and it really felt like my head was a balloon that was tethered to my feet and that there was no body in between. And I, it was quite comical and enjoyable and went on for probably half a day and I had a good time. Uh, you know, really just this very light feeling of uh, dragging my head behind me like a balloon. Uh, and then the body came back and was solid again. <clears throat> but when you come out of this high concentration state, high energy state, you drop into the knowledge of the miseries, uh, is the Buddhist term, or dark night of the soul is the, the Christian term. And you're confronted with the second pass at the 
three characteristics. Um, not self, uh, which is uh, called associated with fear, uh, impermanence, which is associated with misery, and then uh, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, reactivity, which is associated with disgust. Um, sometimes I have uh, qualms about the the quality of the monastic characterization of these things. I haven't found. Uh, the disgust aspect to be so relevant in considering the body. Um, but I do get that it's a, it's fleshy and liquidy and smelly and all the, the other things that you, you notice about body. It ages, uh, it's painful. But it also has the capacity for pleasure and, and beauty and the other things I don't uh, uh, discount those, I guess. In the fearfulness that there is no self, you make this deeper investigation of how you cling to the experience of, of this uh, need for a solid self that you can count on that's reliable. In the misery of impermanence, um, uh, largely it's around the, the macro stuff. Nothing is going to last. Nothing can be counted on. It brings to mind the five remembrances. I'm of a nature to uh, become ill. There's nothing I can do to prevent illness. I'm of a nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent growing old. I'm of a nature to die. There's nothing I can do to prevent death. Uh, uh, everything I have and everyone I love is of the nature to change. There's nothing that I can do to prevent being separated from them. Um, my only true possessions are my actions. There's nothing that I can do to prevent the consequences of my actions. And then the last one is this, the aging and dying and not getting what you want or getting it and losing it or putting up with things and the irritation. And then what you discover there is that really the resistance to the nature of the human condition is what causes suffering. And there's this track that arises. I really think of it as an undercurrent, which is the desire to be relieved from suffering. And you can drop into that. And it pulls you out of the knowledge of the miseries into uh, reobservation, where you begin to process the present moment experience with the 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 understanding of the true nature of the human condition and so you don't suffer from a resistance to the to the 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 way that it is and when you come out of that reobservation you come into this this field of equanimity and it's like a plateau in some sense and so you're you're actually in pretty good shape when you when you get into that level of realization because you understand uh, the nature uh, of the human condition, and you're, you're cool with it. Um, but then there is the uh, uh, aspect of uh, liberation um, that op can open up when you're on this plateau of equanimity. And really the first thing that happens uh, as you're sailing along in this, this uh, neutral place is that you have 
a sense that something big could happen. If you haven't had the experience of cessation before, then you wouldn't know that actually this is the setup for a cessation experience. But what you know is something big could happen. So there's that could happen. And then there's the experience of something is definitely going to happen. And then there's a space of cessation where, where you, you have no awareness. When we say cessation, what we mean is the cessation of awareness. And then uh, it lasts however long it lasts. There's, there's ways to track it um, after you come back from it to see how long it lasts, and it varies quite a bit. And then you come out of that uh, and watch the, the, the experience of uh, self and world reassemble. And it's in this process of witnessing the reassembling that you uh, move through the eradication of the first three fetters. So, Christian? Is this cessation process like if you're a werewolf and it's like a full moon, you like should probably have someone lock you in a room during that time. <laughs> no, I didn't say you're not bobbing around doing whatever it is you're doing. Uh, you're just not, you don't have awareness, so you don't track it. All right. This is the Theravada process. Uh, apparently, Lucy differs quite a bit <laughs> in opinion. <laughs> in the traditional way that the cessation experience is described in Theravada stuff, let me just grab Lucy. So in the traditional way that the Theravada experience is described is there's cessation, so there's no awareness. And then the first thing that, that happens is an awareness of sound, but it's undifferentiated, so ultimate. And then there's an experience of light, but also undifferentiated. So it's just the kind of like a crystalline jewel-like light show. And then... Um, then um, it it forms into shape and color and there's the experience of that but it's also just completely undefined and then then uh, the the uh, conceptual reality forms and you see clearly the contrast between the ultimate reality experience and the conceptual reality experience. You have the direct experience of what that ultimate reality experience was like in comparison to the limited and suffering nature of conceptual reality. And that eradicates the 
a hindrance of doubt uh, because you see through direct experience the contrast between them it eradicates the uh, belief in self as a, a, a solid ongoing experience because you have the contrast between the undifferentiated experience and the limited identity and then the last one is it it uh, uh, breaks up the the belief in religious exper experience as uh, an enlightenment experience is that all making sense it does however plunge you into the the, the most intense craving and aversion <laughs> you've probably ever known tom I'm, I'm noticing that there, uh, it seems like these um, these um, absorption states <clears throat> kind of are um, an immersive version of what you do while you're tra learning to track sensory experience. Uh huh. Can you and say a little more? Well, I just I just like so initially when you're tracking sensory experience, it's a very uh subtle and focused um object process right there's a more gradual evolution of more and more subtle objects but then once you go into these absorption states you're actually they're an immersive experience but they're almost like a parallel because as once you started saying well, then sound and then right light and then these other experiences start to manifest but they you are you are immersed in that yes exactly <laughs> then what happens is you know that you've had the fruition experience that's the next stage and the stage after that is knowing whether or not you've taken a path uh so um and then uh, when you come out of uh, that fruition process, there's also the, uh, a sense of whether there's uh, uh, nirvana without residue or nirvana with residue. So in the, in the Theravada map, there's four stages, stream entry, uh, um, once returner, non returner, and then arahat, the four stages. Um, <clears throat> I also notice in just talking to people about these kinds of experiences that a lot of people report that they go into an intensely blissful experience that lasts sometimes weeks. Uh, and some people go into a, a process where they're cycling in and out of the cessation experiences, although they don't last very long. So one of the things that uh, uh, is mentioned in the Manual of Insight is the duration of the cessation experience and, and whether or not uh, you take a path as a consideration. And then you get uh, dropped out of, the, of the, the cycle and then repeat the cycle again. So I think one of the things that if you take on uh, dharma maps and particularly this map is that you'll notice that practice is oriented around going through this cycle over and over and over again 
you begin to recognize where you are in the cycle so that you can begin to recognize which technique is appropriate for which part of the, the cycle. Um, one of the things that I think becomes clear as you practice is that the kind of meditation technique that you do produces the kind of insight that you experience. And so in the Theravada uh, practice, it's really oriented around these uh, profound no-self experiences, which aren't really the same in, in say, a Zen tradition or in a uh, Tibetan tradition, Vajrayana tradition. Um, and I think that there is actually some brain science that's coming out with scans of comparing the um, the brain activity of Theravada med meditators uh, in comparison to Tibetan meditators. I think Judd Brewer and Dan Brown did some scans of advanced practitioners. Uh, so then the question is, um, how do we want to organize our practice? I tend to, to I like this map because it, it just mapped on my experience of practice before I knew um, what the map was. And so it, there was very little uh, transliteration that I needed to do, very little um, um, change in the, in the way that my practice went. And I think that that's partly because uh, my main teacher at the time was um, Shinzen Young and the way that he organizes the practice and the techniques that he offers have a tendency to lead toward these kinds of insights. Um, the question then is, why are you practicing and what is it that you want to get out of it? I notice in, that in my experience of teaching is that people are coming ma mainly because they're, they're suffering about something. And uh, I often find that uh, for householders in particular, the suffering has more to do with uh, being able to uh, be in the world in a way that's satisfying, that's meaningful. And that's uh, probably the, the main reason that we um, started working around the attachment uh, repair uh, curriculum because uh, in some sense we think of that as our, the preliminary practice for our culture. It's hard to put together the time, energy, and resources that are necessary to practice in a deep way uh, as a householder where our society really isn't organized or oriented toward that. Uh, and so uh, it is also uh, important to be able to have people around you that will support you as you do this, because it's challenging to be able to do this. I think one of the common experiences I had uh, early on, and maybe even my own motivation was to be able to not have to rely on other people at all. I wanted to be free of that, that need to be completely self-sufficient so that I could make my way through the world because I had so much difficulty with interpersonal relationships. Um, but it also made it much harder to uh, be able to sustain the kind of uh, inquiry that uh, a deep meditation practice requires. And that as I was able to resolve a lot of these interpersonal relationship issues, uh, it made it, the practice easier because I had the support that I needed 
uh, and uh, and the encouragement that I needed to be able to keep going. So I'm I really am thinking of these uh, practices that uh, stabilize the 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 social support that you have and stabilize your householder life in such a way that you then can reliably allocate the time, energy, and resources that are necessary to practice. Um, I think that mainly the way that uh, the practice deepens is by going on retreats. And so how can you organize your life in such a way that you can go twice a year or three times or four times a year on retreat? Uh, when really the our, our society is not at all orientated toward that sort of thing. We don't even get it, uh, you know, um, uh, a break. If you have a, a child board, I mean, we're really not oriented to that. It really is in service of the works, the employment. Is that making sense uh, in terms of it? Tom? Um, so what you've been saying about the, um, the uh, attachment work as being a, stabilize, a stabilizing base, it's almost like um, it's almost like a uh, not in form, but in 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 um, in principle, almost like uh, the uh, vinaya. In, a, in an odd way. Uh huh. Say I mean, more. In, a, in an odd in an odd way, because that's what the vinaya is intended to do as well—to stabilize for the deeper work. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> yes. Um, it may be possible that you're able to connect ideas even further apart than I am, <laughs> which I really appreciate. Well, <laughs> except that it's a lot more appealing. Right. Uh, I mean, it's a lot more appealing. The um, the uh, in some way the vinaya the vinaya for a, a layperson is, is is kind of an extreme austerity. Right. Where whereas the uh, doing the attachment work just bring you know it just brings. Um, anyway, sorry. I'll. No. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate I'll it. try to stay more, uh, more in. <laughs> I'll say I'll save the oddball, uh, the oddball uh, remarks for my journal. <laughs> what I find uh, is that uh, I just need to connect the dots between the, the the ideas, which is why I ask you the follow up question. So it makes sense. Okay. Um, I do. Um, um, find that uh you know the 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 drive for deep practice is also the exploration for meaningfulness uh, and that they work very well together so the models really do mesh well so we are exploring to find meaning uh, in this human condition and if you can set it up so that you're very well supported in the exploration, then you can take big risks uh, in your exploration. And if you don't have that that net, uh, using a high wire metaphor, you're you're more you're freer to 
really explore the limits of the high wire if you if you know that there's a net and if there's no net it, it has often has an inhibiting uh, effect that limits the exploration and we really do want to get out there to the edge and find meaning so then um <clears throat> Let's do some meditation practice. Um, a version of see, hear, feel, uh, and then um, adding to that the exploration of the three characteristics, since it's one of one of the fundamental understandings. Um, we'll do it a focus in, focus out, uh, pretty simple, and then add these these uh, overlays of investigation around the three characteristics. So go ahead and uh, so take your meditation posture. So how'd that go? You found the solid self, everything lasts, and you always get what you want. Christian, my uh, my lotto, my winning lotto numbers came to me while I was doing that. Uh, I get half. Okay. <laughs> Deal. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if maybe there's not an insight for me to find, or or that I've kind of already had this, but in the first part with the looking for the self, um, I was in a lot of feel in uh and i like like pleasant sensations and and i was kind of like like i don't know there's not really a self here but i was like i i feel like there's this sense of self that's like somewhere and so i was like but i'm thinking about it so that's like herein and and then like I was sort of getting irritated at the sort of meta-ness of, of it all. And so like, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's a feel-in. So it's like, I was kind of like, well, there, there seems to be kind of a sense of self that comes together from constellation of certain sense gates being activated. Um, but I don't know if, if I was just kind of spinning my wheels or something no i think that that's actually true there is an organizing self-experience that arises it's just not permanent it's based on the conditions of the present moment in the moment that it arises and then once those conditions change it changes or disappears and that actually is the insight that we're hoping that you'll have okay. once you really see that the sense of self that you have arises based on the conditions and uh that it's not reliable beyond that, uh, then you have the insight. Okay. Well, then maybe this is like going back and practicing your dribbling or something once you're in the NBA. Well, um, I think I've had this insight bef before a number of times, or like I, I kind of reached back to what was already my sort of conclusion about how this works. So then you know that the insight is really integrated when you no longer need to defend the sense of self when it arises. 
If somebody, when you say defend? somebody says something to you and the sense of self uh, solidifies around that and you have the sense that you need to protect the sense of self from the outrage and then see through that and don't have the need to. Then so, you've fully integrated it. So kind of being able to see like, oh, like I, I had a big eruption of the sense of self. Is that true? Or like, what is that reacting to in this moment? And right. that would allow me then to not be so reactive to whatever just happened or right. to have more of a choice about how I'm going to act. Right. But also really understand that you don't need to defend the self. It's ephemeral and it comes and goes. There's nothing to defend. Someone else? Thank you for coming. Uh, I think Saturday we have uh, the third of the level one day longs happening. Uh, the following Sunday we have the third of the, that series of the level one. Uh, April 11th, we have a level two class starting if you're interested in doing that. We're going to do a virtual retreat in April. I think it's up on the website if you wanted to register for it. We're going to do an in-person retreat October 1st to October 8th in the Sierras. Uh, that's also open for registration on the website. Uh, anything else coming up? I think that's probably everything. Um, so take a look at what what's there. Uh, um, I uh, appreciate your coming and practicing. Uh, I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll consider making a donation and help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing, uh, that you can find a link to make a do donation on the website. Uh, we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye.